You are tuned in to Kids in the Pit. Hey guys, it's Gabe from the Kids in the Pit podcast. This is episode 8. The last two episodes were live interviews from the Hardcore Fest in Philly. I had an amazing time. The highlights for me were H2O, Wisdom and Chains, Hatebreed, and Comeback Kid. Their sets were super fun. Anyway, back to our normal way of doing things. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Greg Benick. Let's go. So, what's your band and what are you doing it? Uh, let me just say first and foremost that this is amazing that you're 10 going to hardcore shows, living the life that most people wish they were living when they were twice your age, three times, four times your age. You're living your very best life. I'm so impressed. So my name is Greg Benick, and I sing and have sung in the band Trial, who continue to kind of exist, even though we've never officially broken up, but we don't really play all that much anymore. Uh, I'm also in a band called Between Earth and Sky. And we haven't played in about 10 years, but we've got an album that we're finishing this year. We've got maybe six or seven songs done and then a handful more to go. Um, and that's basically uh, my band status right now. I was in a band for a while called Bystander, and we're temporarily on hold. And then other than that, I, um, I do a, a number of other things in my life, but we can get into those in a few minutes. Nice. Uh, what are you doing them? Uh, I sing or I scream. I mean, oftentimes when I say I sing, um, people who aren't involved in hardcore assume that I actually have talent, but it's not really the case. It's uh, uh, screaming, of course, and uh, lyric writer and screamer. Nice. So what year did Trial start? Trial first formed as Headline. That was our first name, and that was in 1994. And then shortly after, we switched our name to Trial when our demo came out. That was around February 1995. And we stayed uh, Trial for all that time. Uh, Between Earth and Sky formed in maybe 2000 or so. And in the span of 20 years, 22 years, have managed to play about 11 or 12 shows and <laughs> put out only one EP. We're, um, we're moving a little slowly. We're concentrating really hard on everything we do to make sure it's the best it can be. Oh, uh, so where do you live and how long have you lived there? I live in Seattle, Washington. I split my time between Seattle, Washington and Portland, Oregon. So uh, most of the time I'm here in my loft in Seattle. And then I wouldn't say most of the time, maybe half the time here in Seattle and half the time in Portland, Oregon. And I've, I've lived in Seattle for 30 years now and um, in this loft for, I don't know, half of that or so. Three times my life. Exactly. A while. Sometimes longer than you've been alive, I've lived in this city. Whoa. Whoa is right. So what do you do for a living? Uh, I make my living as a speaker and an MC, and I uh, perform and have performed my entire life in various ways. And what I mean by that is most of the time when I get hired for events, I get hired as a keynote speaker. So I speak on a topic called Build a Better Now. And other times when I get hired as um, uh, a presenter at events, I get hired as an MC or a master of ceremonies to help keep an event moving along. Like, for example, there's a three-day event in Washington, D.C. for a group that's a combination of um, a company and the government working together to help people uh, nurture healthy families. 
and it's a three-day long event and they need somebody to move that event along and make sure that it runs smoothly and speak about important ideas. So they hire me to come in and do that. So it's a pretty unusual job. I started out as a professional juggler when I was just older than you are. I was a professional juggler starting when I was 13 years old. And then I quickly realized that if you juggle and speak about ideas that matter, people pay really close attention. Because if you're just speaking about risk-taking, they might pay attention. But if you speak about risk-taking while juggling a machete, they definitely pay attention. Now, that doesn't mean you should try speaking and juggling yeah. a machete. That's up to your parents to decide. Uh, but for me, it seemed to work. So over the years, I've transformed that into speaking and, like I said, being a master of ceremonies. Okay. So for those not familiar with trial, what song or album do you most suggest they look up? I would say, gosh, it's really hard to say because some of my favorites aren't necessarily the ones that people respond best to. But we... Um, we put out a record called Are These Our Lives in 1999. And I never dreamed when we put out Are These Our Lives that it would have the impact that it did. And when I say that, I'm not talking about response at shows or people you know, jumping off the stage and singing along or anything like that. What I'm talking about is the side of it that most people, almost everyone doesn't see, which is the fact that since 1999, I get one to two messages per week uh, about how the record has impacted somebody's life, how it's changed their life, how it's meant something to them. Um, that's 20, over 20 years uh, that one or two messages a week come in. It's pretty unbelievable to me. I never dreamed that that would happen, um, but it has. So I would say the song that means the most to me from Are These Our Lives is the first song. It's called Reflections. And there's a couple songs on the record which are really meaningful to me. Um, almost all of them, I would say. But the one that speaks to me most recently is Reflections. It talks about the human condition and how we have made a mess of the world, more or less, but that we want something more from the experience of being alive. That even though things are hard or things are challenging or the world is polluted or people are cruel to one another, that in the midst of this condition that we're in, that we created, that we want something more from the experience of being alive uh, from our one and only life. So that's the song that these days means the most to me is Reflections. It's the first song on Are These Our Lives. That sounds like a good song. I'll probably check it out. Please do. If you have any questions about the lyrics, ask me anytime. I'd be happy to answer them. Okay. So my mom has a trial tattoo that says, this is not a trend. Can you explain what that means? Uh, a, that's the best thing I've heard all month. And the month is only half over. You know what? I'm going to go say, that's the best thing I've heard all summer is that your mom has a trial tattoo. Um, the song, This Is Not A Trend, was on our second record, a record called Foundation that came out 1997. 97? Yeah, 97. And here's what was happening in 1997, which was a bit before your time. Um, hardcore and straight edge and punk rock was being commodified by, uh, by major corporations. And what I mean by that is hardcore and punk rock meant something to all of us. It was an idea. It was a feeling. It was a, a community. It was a sense of belonging. And what companies realized was that they could sell that idea in terms of clothes and in terms of records and in terms of a fashion. They could sell that to people 
as if they were selling the experience of being involved in it. So to put it in perspective of you, you said that some of your favorite bands uh, to see at This Is Hardcore, H2O, Hatebreed, you know what it felt like to be there. Yes. How, how would you sell that to somebody? You couldn't. You couldn't sell that feeling. You might be able to sell them a T-shirt. You might be able to sell them a, um, a patch, a sticker, a record, but you couldn't sell the feeling of hardcore. And what these companies were trying to do was to sell the feeling of hardcore, to commodify it, to make it into something you could purchase. And the song, This Is Not A Trend, was in response to that. We were offended, to be honest, that something that we had loved since the 1980s, certainly when we got involved in hardcore uh, as members of the band, that something that we loved and were so passionate about was being commodified and simplified into something that could be bought or sold. And our opinion was that hardcore could not be bought or sold. You could buy a patch, you could buy a shirt, you could buy whatever you wanted, the commodity. But the feeling was not purchasable. The feeling was something you had to experience. So the trend that we were referring to was the commodification of hardcore, the buying and selling in the shopping malls of hardcore. And we felt that hardcore had to be lived and should be lived rather than should be purchased. So the song, This Is Not A Trend, and the title, This Is Not A Trend, was a backlash against that commodification. Oh, well, that's a good message. So are you still straight edge? And how many years have you been straight edge? I am indeed still straight edge. And I have been straight edge for September 30th, 1988, Let's see, whatever today minus September 30, 30th, 1988 is 30, almost 34 years. I mean, it's remember like, the yeah, exact almost, date. Yeah, September 30th, 1988. That's, what, that's crazy. You still yeah. remember the exact date. I, I do. I remember the exact date. And the idea for me was that, you know, there's always going to be things in our lives that, um, that intoxicate us. And what I mean by that is we feel overwhelmed with emotion. We feel consumed by an experience. Uh, we might even eat some food that just gets us completely energized when we need fuel the most. But there's a huge difference between that and being intentionally intoxicated to mask ourselves from the experiences of being alive. So I just made a decision that day. I was 17 years old. I made a decision that day that I didn't want to mask the experience of being alive intentionally. I wanted to uh, confront, that might be too strong a word. I wanted to embrace the experience of being alive as much as I could. And in doing so, decided to do without intoxicants and do without, um, or rather the intoxicants, which would intentionally cloud my mind. So yeah, that was it. September 30th, 1988, still straight edge to this day. That's really good. So uh, what is the band that first got you into punk, hardcore, or metal music? Ooh, what a question that is. Um, okay, so when I was first, very, very first listening to hardcore and punk, now this, is, this story, if I tell you the story, the true story, this is going to sound like I'm a dinosaur from like a thousand years ago, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Okay. This is like going to be like a history lesson and you get to laugh at me all at once. Cause I'm going to sound like something that was like born when like dinosaurs were roaming the earth. But when I got involved in punk and hardcore and was first interested in it, there was a kid who lived up the street from me, for me, his name was Chris. 
And I had no idea what punk and hardcore was. I was listening to rock music. I was listening to metal, like, but more um, bands like Rat, Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, um, all bands I love to this day. Uh, Dokken. I could go on and on and we could do a whole podcast interview about my passionate love for hair metal. Um, but <laughs> those bands were on the radio, right? My friend Chris, and this is the part that sounds like something out of literally the caveman times. He climbed up on the roof of his parents' house and in order to get better radio reception, took an antenna and put it on the roof of his parents' house. And I lived in Connecticut and he pointed it towards New York City, which helped him get better reception for his radio somehow. And he recorded on cassette tapes the songs he was hearing out of New York. Like when, even when I tell you the story, it honestly sounds like the next thing out of my mouth should be. And then King Louis the 14th came over for lunch. I mean, this is so nuts, but he came over to my house with this cassette tape that he had recorded from two places. One was out of um, New York and he recorded hip hop and rap out of radio stations uh, from New York city. And then WXCI, which was a radio station in Danbury, Connecticut, had a show called The Adventure Jukebox. And he also recorded, and you could get that over the radio, uh, songs from The Adventure Jukebox. So uh, he came over to my house and he had, he had this, this recording with these bands, the Meat Men, Angry Samoans. There was, um, let's see, what else was on there? Husker Du and some, some others, uh, some of which I haven't listened to more or less since then and then others which really inspired me and i listened to this stuff and i lost my mind i mean i couldn't believe what i was hearing and then as time went on we found more bands seven seconds and and bands like that and punk bands and then we realized there were bands out of the connecticut boston area that we could be listening to bands like the proletariat who are an incredible band and i'd recommend to you their album indifference uh, it's a very powerful and uh, potent political record um, but early on, it was, uh, it was those bands that first introduced me to things. Now, I was very fortunate to grow up near a club called the Anthrax, which was an iconic um, punk rock, hardcore club. And I grew up near a, a club called the Agora, which is no longer there. Neither of those are there in West Hartford, Connecticut. So my first shows shortly thereafter, I was very fortunate. Uh, Husker Du was the first show that I saw at the Agora in West Hartford. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, I saw Bad Brains, Agnostic Front, um, Seven Seconds earlier, uh, later, later that, that spring as well. But these sorts of bands were the bands that I was able to see when I was only like 16, 15 years old. And it really changed my life. And granted, you're ahead of the curve. You've seen way more bands than I did at the time. But for me, it was those early bands like Husker Du that really changed me. And I know a lot of people say Minor Threat and Black Flag. Um, I heard Minor Threat later, and I never really got into Black Flag uh, early on. I never really did. But it was the Proletariat as well was an early band that was really transformative for me because they were a band that made me realize that you could be entirely socially conscious and entirely emotionally vulnerable at the same time. You didn't have to be enraged and sound furious to be involved in hardcore. You could be emotionally involved and be angry. And that's what the proletariat was. And that's what I felt like. I didn't felt pure rage. I didn't, I didn't feel pure rage. I didn't feel anger. I felt those things, but I also felt emotionally vulnerable. And the proletariat was the band which first made me go, 
oh, wow, there's a world of possibility out there. Uh, I almost wore my proletariat shirt today and then decided last minute that I'd just be a super fan because I knew I'd end up talking about them some at some point during this uh, during this interview. But yeah, and, and see, I'll, I'll tell you one other thing is that seeing Husker Du was really important as the first show because we were backstage. My friends and I walked backstage before Husker Du went on stage and two of them were getting drinking. They were drinking water at a drinking fountain. And as we walked by them, one of my friends said, hey, welcome to Connecticut. And they turned around and they were like, oh, yeah, thanks. You know. And as one of them bent over, it was Grant Hart, bent, bent over to get a drink of water. I'm pretty sure it was Grant Hart. It might have been Greg Norton. Uh, bent over to get a drink of water. My friend said, just don't drink the water. Like he was joking, like the water wasn't safe to drink. And they both stood up and started laughing. And I thought, wait a minute. You mean that in punk rock and hardcore, you can actually talk to the people from the bands? Who's ever heard of such a thing? You can't do that with Dokken, Twisted Sister, Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, or Rat. You can't go to their concert and just talk to those guys. They're rock stars. Here in punk rock, you could actually talk to and form relationships with the people that you are listening to their bands. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Transformative. So from an interpersonal standpoint, who's could do? And then from a, an artistic, uh, socially conscious uh, standpoint, the proletariat. Those were the early bands that really did it for me. I'll probably check both of them out. Please do start with with Husker Du. Uh, check they're very different than what the bands that you've mentioned. Very, 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 very different. Um, uh, if you listen to a record called New Day Rising, uh, you're either going to love it or hate it, um, and uh, see what you think. It's very noisy compared to the more straightforward approach of a band like uh, uh, H2O or a band like Hatebreed. And then Proletariat, listen to Indifference that record and really dive into the lyrics of Indifference. Um, and if you ever want to uh, talk about either band, especially Proletariat and the lyrics, just message me anytime and we'll get into a conversation. Okay. So my dad's favorite band is Rush and he said you guys nerd out on Rush Talk. So how many times have you seen them and where was your favorite Rush concert? <sighs> this is dangerous territory. And the reason I say that is because you're 10. And by the time I finish this answer, you're going to be 18. Um, <laughs> I'll keep it shorter. Uh, Rush is my favorite band of all time, uh, without a doubt. And yes, your dad and I definitely nerd out over Rush. Um, I have a, a collection of, you know, hundreds, hundreds of bootleg recordings of Rush, and uh, I've shared those with your dad. So, um, how many times have I seen Rush? If I had to guess, I'm just going to guess and say twenty. I'm not sure. It's not as many as you might think, but it's maybe twenty times or so. Um, maybe. Maybe more, but I think let's just say 20. But the best show, in my opinion, um, on their last tour, my younger brother lives in New York City, and he and I have been Rush fans since we were kids. And I flew to New York City to see them at Madison Square Garden with my brother. The set list was particularly awesome that night. They did some songs that they had not played, but well, one song they had not played before. Uh, they played a song called Losing It, which they had not, I mean, I think they had played it once before that night, maybe two nights before. And I saw it on the second night it was ever performed, I think. I'll have to double check, but still, they'd never played it in any of the other times I'd seen them. So oh. Daryl, my brother, and I went and uh, flew to New York and saw the show together. So it was like, you know, it came full circle, meaning our, our fanship, friendship, and brotherhood came full circle at that show. It was quite amazing. That's cool. So uh, onto some non-music related questions. What was your favorite movie or TV show as a kid? Favorite movie 
or TV, a movie I've got, TV show, let me think about. As a kid, specifically as a kid? Yes. Okay, favorite movie, it's a tie. Uh, okay, I was going to say it's a tie between Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead um, by George Romero, zombie movies. Uh, I'm going to say Day of the Dead. And the reason I'm going to say Day of the Dead over Dawn, even though arguably Dawn is the more important of the two movies socially, um, Day of the Dead was, was my favorite as a kid. Um, Dawn of the Dead came out in 1978 or so. And it was a zombie movie, you know, one of the first zombie movies. I mean, the first, you know, there, there was other zombie movies around that time, but it was the first zombie movie to really make a social statement about what zombies signified. Meaning, I'm not going to give away the movie in case you ever see it, but uh, our, zombies chase our heroes into a shopping mall. And George Romero, when he made the film, wasn't just making a film about zombies eating people like The Walking Dead or Fear the Walking Dead, shows you might have heard of. Um, he was making a movie about the fact that we are the zombies in the shopping mall because shopping malls at the time were new. Uh, so new, in fact, that the rumor is that when he recorded the, and filmed the movie, he had to add in some dialogue when our heroes in a helicopter are first flying over the mall and they look down and they see it. He feared that viewers wouldn't know what a shopping mall was because there just wasn't a lot of shopping malls at the time. So he had the actors overdub a couple of lines. One of them says, what is that? And the other says, oh, it's one of those big indoor malls. That got added in later. So the rumor goes so that viewers would know what a shopping mall even was. But Romero had foresight and insight into culture to see that we would be zombies wandering around the shopping malls, buying things, consuming things. So that arguably is the more important movie. But the movie that I basically memorized, and I'm not kidding when I say that, I memorized the timing, the cadence, the delivery of every actor's lines in the entire movie, more or less, was uh, Day of the Dead, which came out in 1985, I believe. Um, that was a movie that really did it for me. That easily my 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 favorite my favorite movie, and still to this day one of my favorites. And I can still quote many of the lines from the movie. Uh, and then in, in terms of TV shows, it's tough. I mean, the, you know, TV was our world back then. You know, so you'd have a show like The A Team, for example, where no one ever died and every mystery got solved. Um, and, you know, there was just weird characters. I mean, that show was pretty great. There was a show called Soap, which is uh, more, I don't know, lesser known than a show like The A Team, which was pretty funny. Um, uh, Billy Crystal, if I'm remembering correctly, was on the show and it was a, a, a comedy. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, that was, you know, those shows were important to me, I think. I would say we, we watched the A-Team all the time. But also, uh, The Price is Right, which was <laughs> a, um, a, a TV game show, which we could only see when we either skipped or were sick and home from school. So if we skipped school, which we never really did, and you shouldn't either, or if we were sick and home from school during the day, during the week, The Price is Right was on. So if you were watching The Price is Right, you were having a good day because it means you weren't in school that day. So those were some favorites for sure. Oh, oh nice. So if you could tell your 10-year-old self anything at all, what would you tell him? I would tell my 10-year-old self to, that's a really good question. I would tell my 10-year-old self to do in many ways exactly what I have done with my life in a couple different major ways. One, pursue art, performance, speaking, juggling, all the things that I do, pursue that relentlessly and pursue punk rock 
in the same ways that I have relentlessly, but fear less what others say. Ultimately, what others say and think is of the least importance in the world. And we, you, me, your parents, my parents, my brother, everybody, considers what others say oftentimes as so important because we are insecure, frightened, and terrified creatures. And as a result, we get self-esteem and meaning through the opinions of others. And we feel like, oh, what that person's saying, you know, if they like me, then I must be a good person. If they don't like what I'm doing, that must mean something. It's essentially irrelevant. It's, it's meaningful and it's not. And I, in the course of my life, uh, have put far too much weight on that which other people think and what they say. And that's changed <laughs> drastically over the years. And I would tell my 10-year-old self to get on that way, way, way earlier, like care way less about what other people think and say, and care way more about um, what you, meaning you, 10-year-old Greg, uh, want to be doing with your life. Well, that's, uh, that's good. So anything you'd like to add before we wrap things up? Yeah, you're amazing. This is incredible. I mean, I've done so many interviews over the course of the last I don't know, 20, 30 years, whatever it's been. So many interviews, I couldn't possibly remember them all. I remember doing interviews, writing out answers on paper with a pen and sending them to hardcore kids in Singapore and Malaysia and all over the world and, you know, in Europe and whatnot, you know, 25 years ago. I remember, you know, doing interviews, of course, tape recording interviews and sending people cassette tapes with interviews. And then we're doing interviews, of course, over the internet via email. And then we're doing over a phone and now over Zoom. The point is over all this time, you are uh, a great interviewer easily the youngest interviewer, which is very impressive because the interview questions are so great. And just the way that you've conducted this has been super incredible. And I'm just inspired by you. And now I want to go out and do amazing things with the rest of my day. So thank you for the inspiration and thank you for the interview. And if you think of any more questions or if anybody else does, they can get in touch with me anytime. I'm pretty easy to reach. You can find me on Instagram at Greg Benick, G-R-E-G-B-E-N-N-I-C-K. And uh, be sure to check out 100 for Haiti. 100 for Haiti is uh, a nonprofit that um, I am. Uh, I, I run the nonprofit and founded it. It, it. We do development work in Haiti. We work on clean water initiatives, sending kids to school, uh, feeding hungry people, and building houses in the northern part of Haiti. And you can check that out online at um, 100 for Haiti, all spelled out O N E H U N. D-R-E-D-F-O-R-H-A-I-T-I dot org. Check out what we've got going on. I'm going to be updating the, the website a little bit later today, actually. So check out those. Oh, and also Portland Mutual Aid Network. Some friends and I, since uh, George Floyd was murdered a couple summers ago, we've been on the streets of Portland every week giving out supplies to houseless, unsheltered individuals, essential survival supplies and food every single week. Check it out on Instagram at Portland Mutual Aid. So those are uh, important things to check out. But yeah, thank you for the interview. This is awesome. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for chatting with me for episode eight of Kids and Fit Podcast. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. And please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel or follow me on Spotify or other uh, streaming platforms. See you next week. Bye.